Hi folks, and welcome to the Hit Save podcast. This podcast is accompanied by a YouTube video, so if you want to see the images and artwork we are talking about in this episode, head over to our YouTube channel that you can find over at hitsave.org. Now let's dive into the podcast. Indie Game Preservation Initiative. We are here today with Danny Silvers of Lantana Games, and we're going to talk a little about Lantana Games. We're going to talk about Danny. We're going to talk about the games here and dive into the Mondrian series. So to hey. start off, yeah, hi, <laughs> <laughs> Danny. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hi, everybody. I am Danny Silvers. A CEO and founder of Lantana Games in Boston, Massachusetts. We've been around for ooh, 11 years now. And I think as of today, wait, is today the 18th? Ah, uh, the 19th. Oh, so as of yesterday, we are 11 years old. I failed to do a social media post. I should do that today. We recently came out with our latest game on Steam called Mondrian Plastic Reality, which is basically old school brick breaking meets art history in a very pretentious and creative and colorful cartoony package. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm Jonas Rosland. I'm the executive director of HitSave. I'm super, super happy to talk to you here, Danny. You reached out to me a couple of weeks ago when we launched here and when we got things started. So yep. I'm super happy to to sit down and talk to you today. Yep, I saw your post on the Boston Fig Discord that you were looking to reach out to indies in the Boston community about their their work and their games and, and everything. And I was like, hey, you know what? I, I love... You know, I, I love talking about video game development, video games in general. Historical preservation is actually a pretty big part of my family. My mom used to be Gillette's historical archivist. So this kind of initiative is pretty near and dear to my heart. I love that. The Let's dive into Lantana Games a bit. Mm -hmm. First of all, congratulations, 11 years. Yep. So... How did you get started and, and, and why did you start Lontana Games? Uh, so as I was about to graduate college, Savannah College of Art and Design back in 2009, the economy was collapsing. There were practically no jobs available and I needed to keep building my resume. So I was catching up with a development friend of mine from up here. And he said, hey, you know, there's an indie community springing up in Boston. You need to go hit these guys up and get in touch with them and, and become a part of that. And I was like, hey, you know what? Going indie, I think, is a fantastic idea. Let's do it. So I met up with them and, you know, really started networking heavily and getting things established. And at the time, didn't quite know what I was going to do. And so I managed to gather a team of like fellow SCAD grads who are up here. 
And we just started kind of putting together some web games and making a name for ourselves as Lantana. And, you know, over time, we just kept, you know, coming out with little projects. And about five years in, that led to the creation of the original Mondrian Abstraction and Beauty, which ended up uh, miraculously getting exhibited at the Smithsonian. And yeah, it's really just, you know, we've, you know, I'm taking it from there. And people have come and gone over time. And our, our big initiative has become uh, student mentorship, almost more than actual game development. So what we do is we partner up with schools like Northeastern University and SCAD, Becker College. And as of a few weeks ago, actually, Emerson. And now what we do is we open up internship and co-op opportunities for students to come in, learn game development, get some hands-on time with Unity, Photoshop, Click Team Fusion, FL Studio, uh, whatever their tool set of choice is that uh, they want to use to contribute to our projects. And we sort of break industry norms a little bit by having a one contribution, one credit rule. So the moment something that you do gets into our games, you get credit in the game. Yeah. And so that way, when they graduate and they start looking for higher paying or actual paying jobs, they can say, yeah, I was a part of laundry and plastic reality. Or I was a part of you know whatever that we worked on for that particular summer. And, you know, we tell them, you know, show this off in your portfolio, you know, share your pieces, ideally watermark. If like, say you worked on a sprite and you don't want it, ripped off and put into another game so you know they have access to like the logos and and everything else they need to protect their work so we we do go a lot into like how to design their portfolio websites how to uh, spice up their resume lots of like yeah like like really really heavy mentorship kind of stuff and and just Kind of helping out in a way that, you know, when I graduated college, sort of those kinds of opportunities didn't really exist. And so I've always wanted to sort of uh, fill in that gap that didn't really exist for me. There was obviously the community, but there was not that like high level guidance. And so I've always wanted to provide that guidance to students who are starting out in the industry. I love that. I think that's such an Im- important piece of of getting started as well. So having someone mentoring you and, and showing that, hey, we can actually help you start out here in the industry and become successful. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was going to say successful is a, is a pretty high bar in the industry. Sure, sure. But at the very least, confident, I would say. Being able to join up on a game 
and be like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing and, and where we're going to take things. Let's go make something fun. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So Lantana Games is also focused on educational games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you tell us a, a little about that kind of mission that you have within the, the game studio? Sure. I've always viewed us as developers of like the 3 p.m. educational game, the kind of stuff you play when you get home, but that you don't necessarily play in school itself. Mostly because of the red tape and the kind of stuff that I don't have the resources to really deal with and keep up with the curriculum and 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 try to like connect with the tech people and the principals and the teachers and and all these people who you know don't really know what they want out of games i care more about what students want out of games my actual target audience so you know i want to make games that at their core are games but that leave you with a kind of lasting educational impression. So there's a, an old, what you call it, like nickname or, or something that, that basically chocolate covered broccoli, where, you know, it's basically like you create, say, a math quiz and you give it the veneer of a video game. Mm -hmm. That at the end of the day, it's still just a math quiz even if it has like explosions and, you know, unreal power graphics, it's just not, it's, it's just still not fun. So with Mondrian, for instance, the goal there was to essentially kind of create a sort of a mix of an art and an art history class, but still give it like highly addictive gameplay and, you know, the kind of thing that you pick up for an hour a day for the rest of your life and that you can make your own artworks in and share with the community and explore the lives and works of awesome modern artists from the 20th century. So yeah, the 3 p.m. educational game is definitely my kind of focus. And I would think that's primarily because not a lot of the rest of the industry is doing it. I do consider myself slightly subversive and I like, I like mixing things up. I like blending ideas together that normally don't go together and kind of creating these sort of digital smoothies, I guess you could say, and, and seeing what they taste like. I, I think the, yeah, the phrases you use here are just wonderful digital smoothies and uh, chocolate covered broccoli. Yep. Uh, yeah. And food. The, yes. Going to make myself right. hungry if I keep this up. The so the the game itself let let's dive into Mondrian kind of the the series to start off with. Uh, tell us a bit about what it is because it is it is unlike a lot of other things. Mhm. Mm so can you, can you um, explain the, the the game, what it is, and and how it how it kind of works, and then I'll I'll showcase a few pictures here as well. Okay. So 
the original Mondrian Abstraction and Beauty was a essentially a game jam title that was made during a weekend game jam to create Brick Breaker clones. And we had basically Breakout cloned in about five minutes. And, you know, it's a 72-hour game jam. So we were like, okay, where do we take it now? Because we have a game. It's done, technically. But what can we do with it? So the first thing that came to mind was, what if we put it in a circle? What would happen? And so we moved the paddle from going like this to going like this. And all of a sudden that opened up some interesting design possibilities because we started thinking like, okay, well, in a normal Arkanoid type game, the left, the right, and the top are walls and they'll bounce the ball off of it. So what do we do about that? Because now we're circular. So saying that the ball can only drop off the bottom, that doesn't make sense. We would need the ball to be able to fly out on all directions. Okay, so we needed the ball to fly out in all directions. But we still needed some kind of wall to bounce the ball if you like were not in the exact space. So we created a wall graphic of just like, I think we started with a hexagon. And then it was like, wait, but we can we can do all kinds of shapes. So you know, we did circles and squares as well. And then like, well, OK, but where's the challenge in this? So we cut some holes out of the walls and then we could have different variations of the walls. And as we started to bring in all these different variations, we started thinking like, wait, uh, what if we added some more dynamically generated elements to to what we're playing? And then all of a sudden, color schemes started getting dynamically generated. And panel types, ball types, power-up placements, background images, music, all these, all, all these different elements started becoming dynamically generated and completely randomized every single run. And we would get it so that each time we played a level, it was never the same as the last time we played that level. Cool. And... All of a sudden, it was just like this, this weird eureka moment that we were essentially creating a roguelite Arkanoid. And, you know, again, you know, we're thinking about this, these kinds of digital smoothies that, mm -hmm. like, I'm all about. And, like, this, this, has, this is the kind of thing that's never been done before. You know, especially lately in, like, the last decade, you know, the... The Brick Breaker genre is not dead, but it's not particularly interesting either. I've played a few other contemporaries, and yeah, there's just... I think there's a lot in the design space of Mondrian that we solved in terms of mundane gameplay hmm. that a lot of the genre has not. You know, not to be like tooting my own horn or, or anything on that, but stuff like sound effects playing over and over and over again. This is a problem we solved by dynamically altering the frequency of sound effects each time they play. So, you know, for instance, when you pop blocks, instead of just hearing pop, 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 and, and oh. it, it randomizes every time you hear it, and so you never get sick of hearing that sound effect. 
Same goes for like 95% of the other sound effects in the game. And, you know, so, so as we kept building abstraction and beauty, we started thinking like, okay, well, what else can we do in terms of say, you know, the color schemes? So we, we kept it pretty simple for that one. You know, so we did like all red, all green, all blue. Then we started, you know, thinking like, what would this game be like if it was on other platforms? Not that, you know, we had the ability to port it to other platforms, but started thinking like, what if we emulated other platforms? So we did like DOS Amber Monochrome color. I love it. And then kind of updated all the assets in the game to match and then did a Game Boy scheme and then did just like general pixelization as well to kind of look like NES or Super NES and ended up with 12 levels in that one, a handful of different background images, three game modes, online leaderboards, local leaderboards. It was, you know, it ended up being a pretty solid $5 package overall. And so we got that out on Steam after about five months of development positive reviews kept it updated for the next year introduced the gem system a little bit later to you know because it was basically like okay it's a good game but there's not a lot to do so what's what's the real challenge in Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. so the gems introduced uh, a real goal for each level and made it so that if a gem came out obviously you would want those points so, you know, you would dive for the gems while keeping an eye on the ball and it became, it offered kind of a, a risk reward system. So, you know, when, it, when a gem came out, it would be like, okay, well, I need to get that gem, but the ball's headed right for a hole in the wall. So, uh. but that also led to the necessity for another power up that would actually make gems bounce off the wall, same as the ball would normally do. So that necessitated the gem shield, which is one of my favorite power-ups now. Because you get that going, then you don't really have to worry about anything. You can just hit the ball and then mm-hmm. go diving all around the board for any gem you can pick up. So a few months after the game released, we submitted it to the Indie Arcade exhibit at the Smithsonian. We got waitlisted, so it was basically like, eh, okay, I'm not going to hold my breath. You know, no trip to D.C., whatever. But then a couple of weeks later, I got a letter saying that we got in. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to D.C. That so, is fantastic. Yeah. So we, we brought the game down there. The Smithsonian American Art Museum is an absolutely beautiful place. If you've never been, you need to go. And this was like right after Christmas. So uh, there were Christmas lights all over it. And we were in like the big domed room. And it was just just a fantastic expo. And, you know, the game being art based, like it, it fit in perfectly and everybody loved it. And the new this is the first time we showed off the gems and everybody loved those. And it just it just went over so well. It was great. So we kept the game updated with bug fixes and a little bit of content for the rest of the year. 
And then on the first anniversary of the game, I think it was like the 1.3.1 update. At that point, I was like, all right, this one's done. I can't take this any further because if we're going to continue this series, we are going to need to do something really, really special. We can't just keep doing these minor updates to it. It won't be enough and it's not selling enough copies anymore to really be worth it. So, yeah, so at that point, took a couple months off just to rest my brain and then started thinking like, okay, so right, where do we take the series? First thing that came to mind was to not focus so much on video game art history, but to do a real art history kind of experience. Obviously modern art because the game was already named after Piedmondrian. So first thing I did was to... Oh, sorry, what? Can you dive into Piedmondrian for people who don't know who that is? Oh, sure. Pete Mondrian was one of the founders of the neoplasticism movement in the early 20th century. And that movement is color blocks where you see red, blue, yellow, and white blocks just on a page. And so you'll get like composition in red, blue, and yellow or composition in blue, yellow, and red. Or my personal favorite, Victory Boogie Woogie, his last piece where it's just, you know, either like a a very small handful of big squares or a big handful of small squares. And to me, these pieces have always had a very interesting dynamic about them. They've always felt like there's there's a movement and a flow and almost like a, like a, like a subway of particles that are just like, bouncing around everywhere and so that's why the the game you know is about you know bouncing a ball around and yet still has that essence of a mondrian painting when you play it Uh, especially if you get the neoplastic color style in it there's just there's something tangible and familiar about that so his work, he started in the, yeah, he, he started uh, out as an impressionist. And then he met a guy, Theo van Dosberg, who was working on this neoplastic movement. And he joined up on that and helped to popularize it with Theo. And it didn't really gain the level of popularity we know it at today until the 60s, like 20 years after his death, when all of a sudden it started ending up on dresses and in windows and anywhere you looked. It's just all of a sudden it was red, blue, and yellow everywhere. Really, really took off in the 60s. Really, really big part of the mid-century modern movement. So I almost think of Mondrian the game as like a mid-century modern game. That's that's sort of the aesthetic that we've gone for in the whole thing. It comes through a lot of the time, especially in the museum. But then depending on the level you're playing and the color scheme you get and just the whole aspect of dynamically generated everything... 
sometimes it hits it sometimes it's its own little like graphic designy world so it's yeah yeah working with with the dynamic elements is is certainly interesting but yeah since his work was all about like movement and dance and and energy we wanted to bring that across into the game you you've also added a few other artists into the game yes so after i had finished up programming abstraction and beauty we kind of came together and we were like okay what do we do with this series next so the first element we ended up programming was going deeper into paddle controls and adding an acceleration and braking system so the first game it was pretty much start and stop on a dime no matter where you went and this time around your your speed the top speed you can get to and how quickly you will stop are all on ever shifting variables so each each character that we implemented has a top speed acceleration and braking stat much like you would find in like a racing game or a sports game and then using that each character has their own feel for how to play and their own advantages and disadvantages and strategies for beating a level and so we we did some research into which characters we wanted to cover so obviously pete mondrian and then this being a mid-century modern game you, you can't leave andy warhol out it's just i mean that was just mandatory and then started being like, okay, well, how do we how do we mix this up even more? So, you know, we did we did our homework and we found three other characters that really, really impressed us. We needed a Bostonian, obviously, and we found Lois Melu Jones, who, you know, not only grew up on Martha's Vineyard but was an amazing impressionist so and and a big part of the harlem renaissance so we're like her we need her and then we found hale woodruff from atlanta and his work is just absolutely striking he is or was a um, heritage impressionist so a lot of his work has to do with african-american history and american history in general and it it's a very ethereal kind of style it's almost dali-esque in execution but more realistic a little less dreamy and then finally we found sophie tauber arp who was the mother of dada essentially and her work is just plain weird. She did lots of stuff with like marionettes and also like basic colors and shapes, much like Pete as well, Pete Mondrian. And her and her husband, Jean, were the founders of the Dada movement, which you may know from like the fountain, which is literally an upside down toilet. So, yeah, her stuff was weird and kooky and 
like, yeah, we need her. And she's just weird and kooky and awesome. Uh, so at that point, we had five characters. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of the five character cast. So I'm like, that's it. Let's leave it there. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have a, a fantastic cast of characters here. There's um, so much fun. There's so much fun. Yeah, we, we also have a woman here in the picture. Yes. So this this woman is the antagonist of the game. I'm not going to spoil anything yet because she hasn't been properly introduced. But she's up to no good. She she She's up to no good. She is made up. So the way we're going to be handling things is... Well, so so in the game, you do time traveling as you jump into paintings, sort of Mario 64-esque. So the, the game starts off, you see Pete actually running into the foreground, and you actually see him flickering between normal color, Game Boy color, and amber monochrome color. So as, as subtle as it is, we've tied abstraction and beauty canonically into plastic reality. So despite the fact that that game had no story, it happened. And essentially, that game was about Pete trying and, you know, so far failing to escape the plastic reality. And at the beginning of this game, he does. He gets out. And he wakes up in an abandoned building. And he's like, you know, it's a little run down, but I think we can do something with this. So he uh, he remembers that he like when he fell through, he had a painting with him. So he puts it up on the wall. And he's like, OK, I know how to get out now. Let's go in. So he jumps in. And he travels back in time and he starts finding all these missing masterpieces that never got displayed in museums. They were just like buried in a basement or lost to a fire etc etc so these are all derivative works that we've created and so we've done them in the artist's style so there's there's some carryover from abstraction and beauty particularly pete's works but all the works from the new artists are brand new and you just keep sort of uh, time tripping into different paintings to go back uh, to different periods of time and try to find all these missing works. And they keep getting hung up on the wall. We do a little like magic thing where they just like particle down and appear and it looks really cool. And then as they get hung up, Pete starts stumbling into other characters. So in the first chapter of the game that we have out, he does meet Sophie and brings her back. And you can start, as you uh, collect the gems, you can start using those to renovate the museum, decorate it, customize it, kind of however you want. So right now, <clears throat> there's like 144,000 different ways you can build your museum. And that's, that's only going to... That's a lot of different ways. And it's just you know, more that we're going to be adding to that over time, like a lot more. It's pretty exciting. So that's the single player story. And 
all the characters are going to keep getting added one episode at a time. We are taking an episodic form for this so that we can take a little bit more time to fix up bugs and, you know, make sure it all works and do our homework, do the research correctly and really do it right. You know, probably have to go back and do some edits once in a while. But I'm pretty excited about where we can take the story going forward and things we can do with the museum. In particular, with, you know, with regards to player customization uh, and eventually hanging up your own works in there, opening your own galleries, sharing those galleries with friends. And it's, there's just a lot we can do in there. You mentioned the episodes here. So in your mm -hmm. launch blog post, you, you talk about episodes, you talk about series, you talk about seasons. Yes. And one season includes several episodes. Is that how it's going Yeah, to the plan is to do probably between like six and ten episodes in the season. It'll be done when we, we feel like we've hit a finale. But yeah, it'll, it'll be between six and ten, most likely ten. Just got to get back to it. We've been uh, mostly bug fixing since launch. So, and you launched this uh, quite recently in September. Yep. So we spent about three and a half years developing this one. And with the, the big, big part of it being player creativity, we ended up building a pretty solid level editor in it called Mondrian Maker. And... The first challenge for us in Mondrian Maker was remaking all the content from Abstraction and Beauty. The way that game worked was the coordinates of every block in a level were actually hard-coded into the game. So my top priority as a programmer on Plastic Reality was saying, how can we not hard-code like, like, as little as possible? into the game you know make sure that this is as open to player content to modding to like as as little baked in as possible so the level editor like i said yeah the the first challenge was to make all the levels from the first game and bring them into this one that took a little less than a day. And at that point, I'm like, okay, this thing's powerful. But how powerful can we make it? And so we had a level designer at the time, Anna. And Anna was basically like, hey, it'd be cool. Like, I, I know the concept of the game is to, like, dynamically generate these color schemes and everything. But it'd be cool if I could, you know purposefully color stuff and you know they could like always come out that color so uh, we put in a painting system essentially and the painting tools allow you to choose any of 16.9 million colors it's, it's full rgb color space in there you can paint a block you can bring a block in painted you can we've got 
an eyedropper, obviously, so you can pick up a color on any block, even if like the, the color was dynamically generated on it. You can pull that and be like, I like that color. And just pull that one. There's the paint scraper to remove a painted color. So other colors will come in dynamically generated instead. So you can mix and match those two systems. And you can apply varnish actually to the whole level to uh, protect a block from being accidentally painted. If you know, like you're, you're building in layers for instance, and you're like, you know, say you've got very intricate, a painting or a pattern or something that you want to protect, you can just click the varnish can that protects it. And then anything else you add on top of it. And, you know, say you go to paint, you won't accidentally paint anything underneath. So, you know, you can protect your work, save it. And then of course, you know, gameplay wise, you can change uh, to the different block types. So in abstraction and beauty we only had the regular blocks which you had to pop to uh, break a level and we had gray blocks which were indestructible obstacles in plastic reality the gray blocks are destructible but they take time you still don't need to destroy them to beat a level we also introduced splitter blocks which create more create regular blocks when you hit them and we also introduced teleporters which will teleport the block, teleport the ball, sorry, from one teleporter to another. So it goes like zooming around everywhere and it's completely insane. So you can uh, flip a block to either of those. You can apply modifiers like shifting and phasing to move them around or make them blink in and out. You can adjust the timings on those as well. So like on shifter blocks, you can change the distance and direction they can go. And on phase blocks, you can change how long they will stay in a visible or invisible phase. And so we've seen some, you know, some crazy stuff with like basically building two levels in one where like one level will, you know, phase in like after nine seconds and then it'll blink out and the, the other one will phase in on top of it. And so, you know, depending on the time you'll be, you know, in one level and all of a sudden you're in another level. And the game can handle it. You know, the wow. first game, the first game could not have handled it. But optimization was a big, big, big effort on this one. And so each level is around or under 100 kilobytes. They load instantly. The load times were so bad on the first game. So bad. It probably took like 10 seconds just to load a single level of like 100 squares less than 100 like 64 squares and now we've got levels of four five hundred even a thousand blocks that load in under a second it's just it, it it's come it's a complete night and day scenario between the two games it's um, a lot more fun to to try at different levels as well yes yes a lot more fun a lot easier there's a lot more room for experimentation. And then the Steam Workshop button is right in the editor as well. So all you need to do is make sure that you have a thumbnail uh, of your level that has the same name as your level in the game's thumbnails folder. And you click the Share button, and you click Upload to Steam Workshop. Two seconds later, it's up on Steam. Yeah. Pretty so, painless. Uh, uh, tying into that, the 
the Steam Workshop there. How, how has that been working out for you with uh, regards to building up a community and things like that? Oh, it's been tough. You know, we unfortunately didn't have any like publishing or marketing deals for the game. We tried. Unfortunately, we had more than one marketing firm failed to sign their end of the contract due to COVID. Like we kept getting the excuse that like, oh, sorry, things are backed up because of COVID six months after the pandemic started. And my thinking was basically like, if by this point you don't have your stuff together, just go out of business because you're not doing anybody any favors. So unfortunately, that that was a big setback. But it was one I think we were kind of prepared for because knowing that we were going to be handling this game episodically and that we'd be growing it over time and that we'd be committed to growing it for years to come because it's in so much more of a moldable state than abstraction and beauty was mm -hmm. with the different tool sets and the museum and the game itself and leaderboards and workshop and, and all these different integrations and razor chroma and, and even more that we can add in that we're basically like, this is a project that we don't have to ever abandon. And as the tool sets get better, people will start trickling in bit by bit. And so it's really just going to be a matter of getting the word out and almost more targeting an artsy audience than a gamer audience. And we've been trying to target that on that artsy audience. Problem is what we're quickly finding is that that artsy audience has never picked up a game controller in their life and maybe has a MacBook Air at best. So, yeah, it, it's like, as, as much as I enjoy making those digital smoothies, it it's tough to, at in video games, it's tough to target anybody other than a gamer audience. So, yeah, I don't quite know what the secret sauce is for that yet. So, looking at the the aim for the game here to be an educational tool as well uh, mm -hmm. as a as you said a, a, a 3 p.m game that you play when you get home i mm -hmm. think that's I, I think that's fantastic the and, and targeting another demographic when you have that as a one of your core core ideas uh, targeting a different demographic that have different well, different skills and, and different lives is, of course, hard. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's dive into the the development of the game a little more. Mm -hmm. The the technical portion here. Yeah. So the what does the development process look like for Mondrian Plastic Reality here? It's an interesting one. I've worked on many different kinds of games. I've even worked on conventions, you know, 
I helped to found the Boston Festival of Indie Games back in the day. Mondrian is jazz. It is very improvisational, experimental, see what sticks, see what feels good kind of development. Anybody who's, you know, been brought on board for it, we basically tell them like, yeah, here's what we're, you know, we, we kind of give them a general concept of the thing. Like we want an Andy Warhol inspired background, but then it's kind of on them to go out, find a Warhol piece, twist it, and then deliver their own kind of artwork for it. If somebody has a cool idea for game design to add to the game, we go and experiment with that. Like the editor would not have existed without one of our other programmers at the time being like, this game needs a level editor. And this was like six months, three or six months into development. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're right. I'm going to go make a, a level editor, <laughs> you know? And then that was, you know, I was, I was kind of scared to do it because I'm like, oh my God, I've never made an editor in my life. I've never done like software development in my life. I have no idea what in out cycles are even. I don't know how to save files. I don't know how to open files. This is a nightmare. I had it up and running in three days. <laughs> Completely just, you know, I, I, I think I, I kind of underestimate myself sometimes. I'm like, oh, God, I can't do it. I'm too scared to do it. And then I just do it. And I'm like, oh, why is it always that easy? You know, and then the things you think are going to be easy turn out to be completely impossible. Like the museum, for instance, that didn't come around until earlier this year. Mm -hmm. But I knew we were going to have a story mode. I just didn't know how it would be executed. And so my thinking was, okay, we'll create a space that's essentially a glorified hub world. But what's interesting is that I've never actually seen like a customizable hub world before. Maybe once or twice, but not to the extent that we're already doing it and that it will be within a year from now to really like create a space that not only lets you jump to levels in the story, but that you can make your own that has potential for even more technical and, and game design craziness down the line. And that, you know, can also handle story even more so than what's in the game. So as much as I thought that it would be a glorified, you know, level select menu, it turned out to be more work than I was expecting. And at launch, there were bugs that I didn't run into primarily because the engine we use click team fusion 2.5 plus has a bit of an outdated system for array files and so you can either choose for arrays to be numeric or text and the player file had started out as numeric but eventually had to become text 
and this wasn't a problem on my end because I like just deleted the old file out and had the game generate a new file. Mm-hmm. But then the install file was still numeric. And on top of that, I think th- there were like references in the code to load a numeric file as opposed to loading a text file. And that caused a bug in the story. The players would just be playing level one over and over and over again. Oh, they wouldn't because, be able to progress? Yeah, because the, the, you know, the, the progress wasn't getting saved properly. So I have been tackling that bug for like the last two months. And I think I finally got it, but, you know, still needs more testing. And it's funny because, you know, I've heard players say, yeah, like it works fine on my laptop and then it doesn't work fine on my desktop. So before we're able to get this patch out, I guess results may vary, which, which isn't great. So yeah, I need to, that's, that's like the big, big focus of getting that fixed and making sure players can get through the story, especially before we come out with episode two, episode three, et cetera. That, that makes a lot of sense. Let's shift focus a little bit. You, you mentioned the Boston fig, the yep. festival of indie games. Can you talk a little about the, the festival itself, the organization, how you were involved. Mm-hmm. So the festival started in 2012 on a tweet. My friend Justin and I were basically tweeting about how IGF had kind of screwed up that year a little bit. They had promised feedback from curators on all the games that had been submitted and then got feedback to nobody. This was back in like 2012. And we were basically like, we could do this so much better. And we could basically just throw a kegger and play games and it'll be awesome. And we were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's let's throw a kegger like over at Microsoft or something. And we'll just play games and everybody will get feedback on their games and it'll be fantastic. Little did we know how big this idea would become. And we had, you know, sort of like set up a a coffee meeting over at MIT. And we brought in our friend uh, Caroline and our friend Clara. And then a new person showed up, Fiona. And Fiona had been involved in event development at South by Southwest. So Fiona basically like kicked our asses a little bit and said, there's demand for this to be a real event. You can get real attendees to show up. You can potentially make money. We, we need to do this properly or not do it at all. This is not a party. This is a convention. And so we were like, okay. And none of us had ever really been in event development before. Caroline had run Boston Indies, but you know, that's not like general audience. We're talking like big scale and and we kind of knew it, but we didn't know how big scale we figured a couple hundred people. 
So we booked a couple classrooms at MIT, gathered developers from the Northeast, lined up a few talks, scheduled the day, got the ads out, and you know the expression, if you build it, they will come? Yep. It's more like, if you build it, they will break fire code. We thought we'd get a couple hundred people. We got a couple thousand. That's crazy. Um, and before we knew it, these two classrooms at MIT were packed to the brim with adults and kids alike playing mm -hmm. games, mm -hmm. kind of doing deals under the table to buy copies. We had uh, a cosplayer in a big like box fan getting stuck in the revolving door i will never forget that because you know the, the walkie-talkie went off and said producers we need your help there's a cosplayer stuck in the revolving door we booked it we we were just running like crazy laughing hysterically we had to see this this is one of those things that's like once in a lifetime opportunity it was a disastrous and hilarious and beautiful day it was just the most fun experience of my life putting together the first boston fig and so the second year rolled around and you know it was basically like okay well we need to scale because people are showing up to this thing and it's kind of nuts so we booked bigger spaces at mit we put a concert together and it was still free to attend, which was a mistake because we ended the year in the red. So there was, uh -huh. there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of nervousness about like, will we be able to continue this going forward? And most of the producers dropped out after the second year. But I was like, I'm not going to go out on a failure. I need to make sure that this event continues because this is very, very important. But it was basically, yeah, I, I don't want to end on failure. I want to go out on top. So the only other producer who stayed on board was my friend Arjen. And Arjen and I decided we are going to make this an actual nonprofit organization. We are going to start charging for ticket sales for the first time. We're going to have to raise exhibitor prices just a little bit, but we know that what we're offering is the kind of service that people want. And then meanwhile, you know, we slashed as much as we could from the budget. We, you know, as, as great as the concert was, we couldn't afford a second concert. So that got cut. Lanyards, you know, there's there's a big fight about getting fancy lanyards again, and I really put my foot down on that one. I was like, nope, cheap lanyards. I don't want to spend more than five cents a lanyard. It's not worth it. You know, slash 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 slash. Had to cut as much fat from the budget as we could, and we ended up in the black after that show between cutting things from the budget and 
you know, charging 10 bucks a ticket and, you know, really like being as savvy business, as stressful as it was, savvy business as we could with, you know, our targeted marketing and knowing exactly which rooms we were going to get at MIT and knowing exactly what we were going to pay for them and working out, you know, just these exact deals. We, we managed to end up in the black and it was around that point that my Lantana team told me, we need you back here mm. making games and not doing this convention anymore. I said, all right. And so at that point, I was happy to leave the convention back in Caroline's competent hands. And she's been running it ever since, and it's doing great. And uh, yeah, I just saw the announcement. It's going to be a virtual event in yep. the start of the year, next year. Yes, I am definitely planning on submitting Mondrian to that. That sounds awesome. So let's go back to the the game here Mondrian Plastic Reality and uh, mm -hmm. Montana Games what do you think about the the future of your your game here what are you most excited about and what are you most worried about I think what I'm most excited about and worried about is the same thing we want to not only continue the story episodically but also open up the museum as a live events platform. Ooh, one of the, yes. So one of the, the big shutdowns from COVID-19 that you don't hear much about is actually the art world and galleries being unable to reopen or, you know, going out of business artists having nowhere to display their works other than websites. It is a very difficult time for the art world, for the gallery world. And Mondrian Plastic Reality actually presents a very unique opportunity in that space. And what we have the ability to do is actually open up the museum to artists, to galleries, to shows for artists, musicians, anybody, sculptors, you name it, to display their works. And we can run these as limited time galleries. We can sell related DLC with revenue going to the artists, much as like they would say sell a postcard at a at a gallery opening. Oh cool. And really so so what the museum offers on surface level isn't a whole lot different than what you would get say just showing off your work on a website mm -hmm. the advantage to it though is the playable characters can tell the artist stories and they can make levels that go along with their works so they can send in like a low resolution version of their work. That's the, the piece that hangs on the wall. Medium resolution then pops up in a, a light box and then an HD version for the background in any level that they make to go along with it. And then we can distribute this full pack that players would automatically get access to 
once they own the game. And then if they want to use any of the works on display in their own museum, they can purchase the DLC probably for like, probably like three or four bucks for those, maybe five. And then we would have it so that 80% of the net revenue we get from Steam would go back to the artist. So we see this as a potentially amazing opportunity to really help the art world out in a way that nobody else is helping them out right now. But like I was saying earlier, it's very tough to get that kind of target audience on board because generally they're not gamers and you know it's maybe not the kind of thing they were expecting and you know the game doesn't have the biggest audience already in terms of being able to tell their story like they would at a gala opening or in term yeah or in terms of being able to really showcase all aspects of their creativity from their paintings or photographs to their sculptures to, you know, if they say wanted to design custom pedestals or even textures to use on the walls and floors, that can all go in. That's all ready to go in. Opening a gallery in Mondrian would probably take about two to three months of work, which is like no different than, you know, opening a gallery in real life. The advantage is it's a lot cheaper for the artists. As of right now, at least we would, we would do it pro bono. And you can also have, you, you can also have several galleries going at one time. Exactly. There's, there's really no limit to that. We're not limited by physical space we're only limited by interest and the personal bandwidth. So as of right now, we do it pro bono. And then in the future, it'd probably be some deal about like, I need to contract that to you guys to make, you know, uh, my space designed differently, but we can, we can custom design the spaces to however they want. You know, you want just like a basic drywall look to it we can do that you want like a jungle we could do that there's the sky's complete limit on what we can do in this you know, almost like making an escape room if you wanted to make an escape room almost i mean i think the tech could be there pretty soon but like it's there's a lot of possibilities for what we can do with that and it's something and I've had in mind for at least the length of this pandemic. And I don't see this going away anytime soon. And small businesses are taking a big, big hit. So yes, this is uh, a niche. The, the game has a niche audience. And the, the people who would be interested in opening up these spaces are even more niche. But I think once we get one out there the ball is rolling and the interest could end up skyrocketing it's very fascinating 
And if any artists out there are watching this and want to do a gallery opening, get in touch with me. My email is always open, dsilvers at lantanagames.com. Just, just drop me a line. Yeah, yeah, please do. So to kind of wrap this up here, this has been a fantastic time to chat with you here. Oh, thank you. You, <laughs> you talked about uh, mentorship and how you help students getting started and, and getting confident. Mm-hmm. So looking at the, the indie scene, when you started, compared to what it is right now, mm-hmm. what are some of the some of the tips and tricks, some of the suggestions that you would make to someone that wanted to get started in game development? Well, I'd say the same thing now that I said 10, 11 years ago, just make a game. The advantage now is not only are more tools free, but there are more resources available than there were back then, particularly in terms of like tutorials and learning you don't need a $100,000 degree to learn how to make games anymore. You need to go to youtube.com and right there you can look up Unity tutorials, you can look up Click Team tutorials, Unreal, Photoshop, whatever you need. The resources are out there for free or for very cheap. You can, you know, like set up a a LinkedIn pro account and do learning there. You can go to Udemy, you can go to teachable. I don't know if pixel prospector is back up, but if it is, that's, you know, where I've always gone for resources and learning and, and free stuff and just get going. It's a great community, the development community, honestly, some of my best friends I've ever made. And it's very supportive, not monetarily, but definitely in terms of, you know, testing and, and pats on the back and, and pointing you in the right direction to the right people to talk to. There's tons of digital events going on now. You may even find a publisher if you're lucky and you have the right kind of game that they're looking for. And there are just, there are so many games being made right now there's a lot of noise but you can break through that noise if you can find the right audience for your work and when you find that right niche audience the advantage of them is they're less likely to be toxic Mm -hmm. especially when you're just starting out you know you will you will still Uh, occasionally run into a naysayer because everyone's a critic, but you know, your, your small audience starting out is going to be real fans of your work. And they're the ones you're going to want to keep with you. I think that's fantastic advice. So again, thank you so much, Danny, for, for the the time here, where, thank you for having me on. Uh, where where can people find you and Lantana Games and, and learn more and buy your games? All our games are on Steam. So just look up Mondrian Plastic Reality on Steam or Abstraction and Beauty or get the whole series bundle for 30% off always. 
You can find us on our website, lantanagames.com, everywhere on social media, at Lantana Games. And like I said, my email is dsilvers at lantanagames.com. Drop me a line if you want to chat, want interested in an internship or a co-op position. If you you know, have a Twitch channel that has 10 subscribers and <laughs> you, you want a copy of the game. I'm not too picky about who, who I send keys out to, but you know, I do want to make sure that like you're active and you play stuff that kind of fits our genres. Uh, or if you're, you know, like I said, an artist looking to uh, get a gallery opening going, you know, would love to get that up and running early next year. That sounds awesome. So, yeah, please get in contact with Danny here. Check out the games at latanagames.com and on Steam. And I'm Jonas Rosland, at Jonas Rosland, and this has been a production of uh, Hit Save. You can find us at hitsave.org and on Twitter uh, at hitsaveorg. Have a fantastic, uh, lovely day. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Jonas. Bye.